Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Joining us from the Santa Barbara studio is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, always good to see you. Hey Brandon, how you doing? Doing well. Listen, we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be discussing Catholic Morality 101. What are the main moral systems people accept today? How should Catholics understand them? Which ones are acceptable? Which ones aren't? All of that is coming your way soon, but before we get there, Bishop, last week or last episode, you told us about this series of books you were reading by Robert Alter that were commentaries oh, yeah. on the Old Testament. Anything else you're reading? What else you got? Well, for fun, since <laughs> my it's my moment for really big books, I'm reading Ron Chernow's biography of, of Grant, Ulysses S. Grant. I never read Chernow before. He wrote the big biography of Washington and then the famous one of Hamilton, and the, you know the, the musical is based on that. Well, I just got this one on Granite. It's really good. Uh, I'm a big Civil War buff. I love Lincoln, and I'm about a quarter of the way through it. It's about a thousand pages, so it's. I read it before I go to bed at night, and it's literally hard to hold up in front of me as I'm reading. But it's really good, so I'm enjoying that. We need to get you like a Kindle. You know, it's for those types you know, of books where you're not, like you're not Kindle, taking though. notes. I, yeah, I guess, but I just don't like it. I don't know. I'm old-fashioned. All right. Well, as I said, we're going to be talking about morality here in this episode. And no surprise to anyone, our culture holds a wide range of different moral views and systems. In this episode, we're going to look at three of the major ones, three that I think have the best representation in our culture today. The first one, and you might say is the most prominent one, Bishop, we can get into that here in a moment, but it's consequentialism. Consequentialism holds that the moral worth of an action should be judged by its consequences. So a good or a right situation is one that produces mostly good consequences and mm -hmm. vice versa. Um, the best known form of consequentialism is known as utilitarianism, uh, where again, the, the actions are judged based on how much happiness they procure mm -hmm. uh, for sentient beings. You know, the number of beings that can think and reason and, and, uh, and feel and experience. We wanna maximize happiness for those types of beings. So Bishop, maybe give us a little more background on consequentialism and then, especially for Catholics, what are some problems that we see with this system? Yeah, as you suggest, Brandon, it's an old system. It goes back a long way. And you think about systems that endure over a long period of time, there's something right in them or they wouldn't have endured that long. So I would never want simply to dismiss, you know, a system that I find inadequate. They, they've got something positive and that's why they've endured. I would say, too, a lot of people instinctually think along consequentialist lines, even if they're not real reflective about how they're doing moral you know, philosophy. They probably instinctually follow that sort of model. Like, okay, I do this, and this happens, and that happens, and well, which one is better? And you know, Here's the basic problem. The problem is it brackets the category of the intrinsically evil act. So in a strict consequentialism, and when I was going through school, what was kind of dominant even in Catholic circles was a form of it called proportionalism. The idea here is that you perform an act, it has both good and bad consequences, and what you do is you try to find what's the relationship between those. Is there a proportion between the good to be attained and the evil that happens? And you, you weigh them. You look at them and say, well, okay, if the good outweighs the evil, then that's a, you know, that's a morally legitimate act. If the evil outweighs the good, it's a bad act. As I say, there's something, you know, we think instinctually, yeah, that seems right. The problem, though, is aren't there some acts 
that are simply wrong, no matter what the consequences are. So you say, well, yeah, if I do this, all kinds of good things are going to happen as a result. I do this, yeah, a lot of good consequences, only a few bad ones, so yeah, it must be okay. An intrinsically evil act is an act that by its very nature is so repugnant to the good and to human flourishing that it can never be justified by appeal to any consequences. And see, Catholic moral theology, we'll get there in a little bit, but insists upon this act. And I've always felt, Brandon, that without the category of the intrinsically evil act, the moral project uh, goes adrift. <laughs> That's to say, if someone's, I mean, clever enough, they can justify pretty much anything. Why couldn't you say, for example, you know, to attain the goal of the political revolution? Well, yeah, sure, a million people had to die, but you know, that's the price you pay because the good of attaining the revolution outweighed the evil. A second problem is, who's making these judgments? <laughs> so you look at an act, I look at an act, and we say, oh yeah, that's, that's good, evil, and okay, that's about 65% versus 35%. Who's deciding? Who's deciding what the right relationship is? And then another problem is the incommensurability of these consequences. How do you gauge, how do you measure the value of this versus the disvalue of that? Uh, you look at, at incommensurable consequences and, and it's like you know apples and oranges. How do you possibly make that adjudication? But the basic problem I would say is the um, suspension of the category of the intrinsically evil. Once that goes, the moral enterprise becomes very, very unmoored and therefore dangerous. Let me throw at you the uh, age-old scenario that college students taking Ethics 101 receive mostly on day one. It's the trolley problem. So you got this trolley train, it's on a runaway track and it's heading toward a group of five people who are maybe tied to the track. It's gonna run them over and kill them if you do nothing. But there's a lever you're standing next to and you have enough time that if you pulled the lever, the train would be diverted to another track. But there's only one person on that track. If it runs over that track, it'll only kill one person. So the ethics professor put it to their students, what do you do? Do you do nothing and let the train kill the five people? Do you pull the lever and kill the one? Both seem like bad options. Um, what, what does a Catholic priest and philosopher say to this situation? Well, you have to assess first the nature of the act. Are we dealing with an act that by its very nature is intrinsically evil? And so in that you know, case, we'd have to do a little more thinking that through. There is a category within Catholic moral theology called the double effect. The double effect would allow for an act that does have a negative uh, consequence. And it would be permissible under certain circumstances. Namely, if the act in itself is not intrinsically evil, if the evil effect is not intended, and if there is some proportion between the evil consequence and the good consequence. So in, in that sort of scenario, um, one could allow for an act that produces certain negative consequences, but only under those strict uh, conditions. Um, there's an example of that that I've always found intriguing uh, as a film buff. Uh, one of my favorite films in recent years is called Master and Commander. Remember the one with Russell Crowe and it's, early 19th century British you know, ship, and they're in a storm, and the, one of the masts is broken and fallen overboard, and there's this sailor kind of clinging to it. And for navigational reasons I won't go into, it becomes clear that unless they cut that mast free, 
the whole ship's going to go under. Well, they know, the captain knows that if he does that, that sailor is going to die. There's no way he can be saved. Well, he does it. Now, how would you analyze that act? You could say, well, cutting the mast free from, from a possibly sinking ship is not intrinsically evil. The captain didn't intend the death of the sailor. And he looked at the consequences. If he, if he uh, cuts it away, this one sailor will die. If he doesn't cut it away, the entire ship will go under. And so there is indeed a proportion there of good versus evil. In that scenario, that act would be seen as permissible. But see, in a strict consequentialism, you bracket the question of the intrinsically evil. You simply look at the calculus of good and evil consequences, and that has all the problems we just named. But see, Catholic moral theology does, if you want, include a kind of consequentialism, but only under that rubric of the double effect. All right, let's move from consequentialism to another major prominent form of morality, and that's deontological morality, or sometimes called legalist morality. So this comes from the Greek word deon, which means obligation or necessity mm -hmm. or binding. Generally, these words refer to duties. So this would be a moral system where you have a long list of moral duties, things that you should do, and then concomitantly things you should not do. So here are all the good behaviors, here are all the bad behaviors. You know, sometimes this gets caricatured as just legalism. You know, you've got two lists and what matters is just following those lists. How should Catholics understand this type of morality? The great figure here is Immanuel Kant, uh, is the best representative of a deontological ethic. Um, Kant says famously, the only thing that's good in an unqualified way is the good will. And that gives away the game for Kant, that it's the will that has properly ordered itself toward the, the moral good that is unqualifiedly good. Uh, consequences, motivations, uh, what's in it for me, any other circumstance is finally irrelevant to that fundamental interior move of the will. Um, so Kant would say in the famous categorical imperative, the maxim of your will should always be congruent with a universal law. That's an abstract way of putting it. That means as I'm about to perform a moral act, I must act in a way that the maxim for myself should be a universal law. It would apply to everybody. What I can't do is say, oh yeah, well, you know, lying is wrong, but under these circumstances, I, I, I will lie because it'll have these effects or because I'm under this pressure or because it'll produce these good consequences. No, no, you must always act such a way that the maxim of your will should become a universal law. That's a formulation of a purely deontological ethic. Now, something valuable about it, yeah, there is something kind of noble and austere uh, about deontology. What's the concern? There's also something that's so abstract and inhuman about it because it abstracts from the particular situation. As though anything like circumstances or consequences are irrelevant to moral determination. And Catholic moral theology would not move in that direction. What it has in common with deontologism, I think, is the stress upon the intrinsically evil act. But it doesn't do it in this austerely abstract Kantian way that completely uh, marginalizes circumstances and, and uh, uh, consequences. That's a, a, a schematic way of putting it. 
All right, let's move to the third and final system I want to talk through with you, and I want to spend a good deal more time on this one. Uh, it's known as virtue ethics, and it's tied closely to uh, natural law morality, yeah. which I want to discuss too. Um, rather than me defining it, how about you give us a definition of both of these things, natural law and then virtue ethics, which flows from natural law. Yeah, good. I, I think natural law ethics are grounded in a sense of the basic goods. I'm using a term there from John Finnis. Uh, when I was going through school, uh, there were competing uh, approaches to morality, but we read uh, John Finnis's famous book, Natural Law and Natural Right. And Finnis, basing himself on Aquinas and the great natural law tradition, articulated this way. There are, he thought, seven basic goods. These are values, to use Dietrich von Hildebrand's language, these are values that appear within nature, within human experience. I won't get them all right. Whenever you try to do a list, you'll, you'll miss some, but it's life, knowledge, play, religion, um, sociability, practical reasonableness. And again, I knew, I think, or did I say art or beauty? Seven incommensurate, irreducible, basic goods that appear within the, the framework of our experience. What's a good act? A good act is one that achieves or integrates one of the basic goods. Think of here Thomas Aquinas who said the first principle of the moral life is do good and avoid evil. <laughs> you say, well, duh, that's rather obvious. But in the same way that the principle of non-contradiction, you say, well, duh, you know, uh, a thing cannot be and not be at the same time in the same respect. But that's the foundation for all, for all reasoning, right? If you don't accept the principle of non-contradiction, you can't reason mathematically or in science or any other way. So in a similar way, Aquinas says, the foundation for moral reasoning is do good, avoid evil. Seek one of the basic goods and avoid a violation of the basic goods. You might put it that way. Now Thomas names them, and, and Finnis is based on this, Thomas names them as existence, life, uh, society, and, and God, a relation to God. For Finnis, that's religion. Uh, he expands Aquinas a little bit. Okay. Now, once you know the basic goods, and that the point of the moral life is to seek them and to avoid uh, violating them, now what? Well, here's where virtue ethics comes in. Now, try to inculcate in yourself and in others, so you're father of, of young kids, so you're very interested in this. Inculcate those habits which will become so ingrained in myself and others that make the attainment of the good first possible and then effortless. Now this is Aristotle. This goes way back. Habituate yourself and others to the good so that these now become ingrained habits, dispositions. Those ingrained habits and dispositions toward the good we call virtues, right? And so a whole theory now of virtue ethics coming up out of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas has been re-expressed. Think now of someone like Alistair McIntyre in our time. Um, very much correlated to the natural law. Um, I think, Brandon, from a theoretical and practical standpoint, it's a very useful way to think about the moral life. As I say, you as a parent are very interested in the proper inculcation of habits in your kids that they're not meant to oppress them, like let me lay the law on you. They're meant to ingrain in them the habits that will make them happy. I'll give you one example. 
So John Finnis will claim that knowledge is a basic good, right? I think it's fair to say, because I'm not going to brag about my own moral life too much, trust me, uh, but I'll brag a little bit that I think, for all kinds of reasons, I got habituated very well toward the basic good of knowledge. I love to read. I love to have intellectual conversations. I love writing. I, I love the life of the mind. We just talked about all the books I'm reading. Well, where'd that come from? That came from parents and teachers when I was a little guy learning how to read and then, you know, putting in me the disposition toward achieving that good. I, I've got that virtue in me, if you want, so that attaining the good becomes something easy for me. And that's true. I, I don't fight that at all. I, I don't struggle against that. Like, oh, I got to read a book and oh, God, please. No, no, I, I happily do that. Now, take all the basic goods toward God, toward friendship and sociability, toward the arts, toward and, and place in us and in our, our friends and children those habits that create the virtues that make the attainment of those goods possible. That's a natural law of virtue ethic, if you want. It seems to me, both as a parent and just in my own life, that virtue ethics is more attractive and effective if our goal is to condition kids or ourselves toward the good. Like your example you just gave of reading books on the yeah. consequentialist system, you would think, well, if, if I learn to read heavy books, what are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? Yeah. And maybe I'd kind of weigh those proportionally and make a decision. Or on the deontological view, it's like, well, here's a rule. You should read books. This is what our teachers <laughs> yeah. in schools tell us. And look how many kids rebel against that sort of demand. But then virtue ethics is like, well, the kind of person that I hope to become yeah. requires stimulating the mind and the intellect and reading books. And I've always, I yes. think parents get that more deeply, that like rule flat rules don't really work. Helping like a young child away future consequences is never going to work, but helping them to become the person they want to yeah. be is more attractive. Well, I'll say something else too, Brandon, against the consequentialist view. Um, Finnis, for example, will say one may never intentionally attack a basic good. That's his way of stating what's an intrinsically evil act, right? Let's take the basic good of life. So are the basic goods to some degree in competition and, you know, I can't do them all at the same time? Yeah, okay, sure. But what can't you ever do? You can't intentionally and directly attack a basic good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abort this child because I think certain goods are going to come from it. Well, no, I don't care what goods could possibly come from it. You can't directly attack a basic good. I'll give you another one, another example, maybe out of that realm. The basic good of, of art or beauty, which Finnis recognizes. Remember a couple years ago when the Taliban was in charge, you know, in Afghanistan, and they were intentionally destroying those ancient works. I think they were Buddhist statues, right? Now, well, to achieve our goals, to make our country more authentically, you know, uh, religious or whatever the reason given, what were they doing though? They were intentionally and directly attacking the basic good of the beautiful. I think here too of uh, Malcolm Miller, the great tour guide at Chartres, you know, whom I heard many times. And, and uh, Miller said one time in a lecture, I get that all religions need to be reformed. You know, they, they all do. Ecclesia semper reformanda, right? But he said, 
The clearest indication that a reform has gone off the rails is when people start destroying beautiful things. Well, yeah, I'd say that's right, because destroying beautiful things on purpose, directly attacking them, is intrinsically evil. Um, you know, uh, World War II was a terrible thing, and to bring the Germans to their knees, uh, we firebombed Dresden and Frankfurt and Cologne. Look at those photographs sometime if you want. An entire city leveled, hundreds of thousands, men, women, children, killed. Um, justifiable? No way. No way. Even if you say, hey, well, wait a minute. Think of the lies we saved. Think of the, the good of the war coming to an end. Well, yeah, sure. But you directly and purposely attack the basic good of life. So that's what's missing in a consequentialist form of moral reasoning. Very much present in a basic goods or natural law approach. It's hard to identify like one Catholic moral system, but I, I think it's safe to say that this sort of natural law of virtue ethics is the most consonant with Catholic morality, at least more so than the other two systems we've discussed. And yeah. we've certainly seen a revival of virtue ethics after the Second Vatican Council. I'm thinking here especially of Pope John Paul II and his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, his writings on moral theology all but endorse this system. The Catechism of the Catholic Church seems pretty explicitly in, in favor of it. It says, yeah. uh, virtue is a habitual and firm disposition to the good. It allows a person not only to perform good acts, but to give the best of himself, which is the right. virtue ethics conception. Um, talk a little bit about this revival of the last, say, 50 years of yeah. virtue ethics, and who are some of the key figures writing about it today? Start with John Paul, uh, and you're right, very taught to splendor. In my judgment, the greatest of his encyclical letters, of the enormous magisterium of John Paul II, I think it's the greatest of his letters. Um, I love the fact Stanley Hauerwas, the Methodist theologian, said when he read Very Taught to Splendor, how wonderful that a Catholic Pope is beginning an encyclical on the moral life with the Bible. And so John Paul begins not with abstract principles, he begins with the story of the rich young man. And see, it fits perfectly, because the rich young man is what? Someone who's seeking the good, right? What must, good teacher, what must I do to attain eternal life? Good, good. It's someone seeking the good. And so John Paul takes that as the beginning of his reflection on the moral life. Uh, I, someone who influenced him very much, and in my judgment, the greatest moral theologian since Vatican II, uh, just recently died a few years ago, a, a Dominican priest named Serve Pinkeres, who taught at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Uh, Pinkeres, in his wonderful text, uh, is it uh, Sources of Catholic, of Christian Ethics, I always get that title wrong, Sources of Christian Ethics. He said, remember that Thomas Aquinas, in the Prima Segunda, that means the, the first part of the second part of the Summa, dealing with the moral life, doesn't get to law until question 90, 90, right? So in a way, take that Immanuel Kant. He doesn't get to law until question 90. What does he begin with? Beatitudo. Happiness. What makes me happy? He begins with the Beatitudes of Christ. What are the goods that will make me happy? Then he moves to the habits and the virtues that will orient me toward those goods that will make me happy, then he gets to law. Because law is meant to give form to the habits 
which then give form to the virtues, which then allow me to attain the good. But don't Aquinas and Pinkhairs and John Paul would all agree, don't begin with the law. That's, you know, how, how many people say, oh, the Catholic Church imposing all these laws on us? No, no. The Catholic Church begins with joy. <laughs> Beatitudo. It then moves to, virtue, to habit, and then to virtue, and then it gets finally to law. Uh, that's a good way to do it. That's a good way to approach it. Begin with the rich young man. Master, good teacher, what must I do? So I'm seeking the good. Show me how, right? And now follow that. It's so, it's so illustrative. Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, right? The laws, which are meant to habituate you toward virtue, toward the good. You know the commandments. Yes, I do, and I followed them all since I was a kid. And I believe them. I have no reason not to believe them. Okay. Then you're ready, kiddo, for the high-octane stuff. What are the Ten Commandments? I mean, that's the basics, if you want. Right? What's going to orient you toward the good? Well, I mean, you've got you to stop you know, some of these egregious violations of love. I mean, of course you've got to honor your parents. Of course you've got to stop stealing. And of course you can't be murdering people. And, you know what I'm saying? The Ten Commandments, that's the bottom line in a way. It's like if you're learning football, it's the three-point stance. It's how to block and tackle. It's like the fundamentals. Hey, I, I learned those since I was a kid. Good. All right? So now we're ready for serious stuff. Or you're at, you're at basketball camp as a, as a sixth grader and you're learning how to dribble and learning how to, you know, the basic form of shooting. And Hey, I've been doing that now for years. All right, good. Now we're ready for, you know, Michael Jordan. Now we're ready for the serious stuff. And that's why the Lord says to the rich young man, sell all you've got, give to the poor and come follow me. So now, now maybe you're ready for the serious life of real discipleship. And of course, famously, the rich young man balks. And, no, I, I can't do that, you know, because he was very rich. Well, that's how John Paul begins, that encyclical. Beautiful, beautiful, exactly right. Uh, begin with the desire to be happy, the desire for the good. And then the church, which as Paul VI said, is an expert in humanity. We got 2,000 years of reflection on what helps you to attain that good. Then off you go. And don't settle for... Hey, I follow the Ten Commandments. Well, great. I mean, I'm, I hope so. I'm glad. N now, uh, you know, uh, hit your wagon to a star. You know, now try to live as a saint. Ah, now we're talking. So I would put Catholic morality in that framework. It's trying to orient us toward being a saint. I've often liked the analogies you've used when talking about virtue ethics that appeal to both sports and music. So with sports, yeah. you use like the baseball analogy that when you're trying to get a young kid to fall in love and uh, develop the habituated skills needed for baseball, you don't like give them the 300-page rule book of right. all the ins and outs of yeah. baseball. Yeah. No, quite right. And uh, I mean, you know that, Brandon, from your uh, background playing basketball. Uh, and, and great coaches know that too, don't they? The coach knows how to draw a kid into the world of basketball, into the moves of basketball. Uh, and helps the kid to see that the rules are his friend, not an imposition, but the rules are what are freeing him, right? Uh, think of young Michael Jordan, you know, when he was learning basketball and coaches, good coaches clearly, were placing within his body the, the moves of the game. Now in time, he became a Rembrandt, he became a, a master that, that kind of redefined the rules in some ways. But heck, he began with the inculcation 
of habits, which led to virtues, which led to the attainment of the good. And then in his case, he's a kind of saint of basketball, if you want. Now, I'm not making Michael Jordan a saint. Don't misunderstand me. He, he's kind of like a, he's a hero of, of the basketball world. Uh, now put it in the moral framework. Same thing, same thing. Teach kids the basics, you know. And that's where, the, again, the commandments come in. Or it's the, you know, the bait. Nah, you don't steal. Come on. You know, like one of your kids, one of your little people is, you know, stole something from his sister. Hey, come on. You don't do that. You know, now he might not understand all the implications and what you're trying to do, but you're trying to place in him habits that will eventually lead him to a great act of self-surrendering love, <laughs> right? But you're not going to get anywhere near that if you're doing things like stealing, you know, from your innocent sister, or, or if you're, you're um, bad-mouthing your friends. Yeah, I mean, why, are you, why are you telling lies about your friends? Why, why are you, you bad-mouthing? You know, don't bear false witness. So, so try to eliminate, or, you know, you're playing basketball, like, man, you can't dribble looking at the ball. Stop that. You're never going to be able to play looking at the ball. I remember my coach when I was a little kid, uh, putting these, this device we put it, uh, that stuck out under our eyes so we couldn't see the ball. And it was meant to inculcate the habit of dribbling without looking at the, the darn ball, you know? Well, that's what the, the commandments are like, aren't they? They're these restrictions. They're not meant to limit our freedom. They're meant to open up our freedom. Well, to use a Bishop Barron phrase, we've barely scratched the surface here. This would require a full graduate course to get into yeah. all the details of Catholic morality. But Bishop, if people want to go a little further, I'm guessing at least the survey Pinkier's text, the sources yeah. of Christian ethics, and then John Paul's Veritatis yeah. Splendor, anything else you'd point people to? Start start with those. Start with Veritatis Splendor, maybe, and then go on to Pinkier's uh, text, I think is the best way to get oriented. If you want to go really high octane, look, start looking at um, Alistair McIntyre, look at a Stanley Hauerwas, who's doing virtue ethics too, not from a Catholic perspective, but um, they'd be in that school. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. If you have one, you can send it in to us by visiting askbishopbaron.com. That's the website where you can record your question. Every episode we take at least one. And today we have a good one from a young man in Los Angeles. He's a, a big member of the Word on Fire Institute, reading the Word on Fire books. And he, he's wondering how to help somebody after they've been evangelized. Hmm. So here's his question. Hi, Bishop Barron, this is Caesar from Los Angeles. I've been a member of the Word on Fire Institute pretty much since it started. I've read Centered the book on the spirituality of Word on Fire, that's great. I feel like a lot of what we do is centered about winning hearts over for the kingdom. But what happens when they're already won over, they're ready to go, they understand, they believe? What's the Word on Fire approach to growing inward and growing close to our Lord? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like what I was describing from um, uh, the rich young man, you know, as he said to the Lord, yeah, I got the basics in place. And then the Lord says, okay, now we're ready for some serious business. So same thing in the spiritual order. Um, centered, you're right, is about the, the basics of the word on fire approach. Uh, find the center, know you're a sinner, realize your life is not about you. Um, if someone gets those basics, uh, I keep pressing with each one. I mean, in a way, we never leave that behind. We just go deeper into all three. The ultimate purpose, you know, of the Christian spiritual life is always mission. Because no one's given an experience of God without being sent on mission. So finally, it's to conduce toward the mission of 
spreading the love of Christ into the world and drawing people into relationship with Him. Um, you know, I, and I, in some ways, that approach is okay. The three steps is, is first you get grounded in, in Christ. But then in the light of Christ, you realize your limitations and, and where I'm blocked and what my attachments are and, and what's preventing me. Okay. And then having dealt with that, now you're ready to be sent. You know, so I would just keep encouraging someone along the, the lines of those three paths. Well, thanks for the great question, Caesar. And if you're a viewer or a watcher or a listener of the uh, Word on Fire show, you can join Caesar and over 15,000 other Catholics inside the Word on Fire Institute. You can sign up at wordonfire.institute. When you sign up, we're going to send you a bunch of cool stuff, including uh, the centered book that Caesar just mentioned, along with the latest issue of the Evangelization and Culture Journal. I think the most recent one, Bishop, isn't it? It's on Christ and Cinema. Isn't that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah beautiful, 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 beautiful journal. And you also get access to all sorts of great courses and films and study programs inside the Institute. So check it out. Again, the website is wordonfire.institute. Well, thanks so much for watching and listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show. Yeah.